Life, to a large degree, is about finding things that fit, isn't it? People um, go to lots of churches often before they join it because they want to find a church that fits. And uh, maybe some of you are in that process at the moment where, you work out where you're working out what actually fits. Um, some of us have done this, others haven't done it, but another part of what fits in life is uh, finding a husband or a wife that fits. True? And sometimes in our society, in fact, a lot of times in our society, and this is something I deal with a fair bit at the school here, is um, husbands and wives decide that they don't fit anymore. I mean, that, that's ultimately what irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences is, isn't it? It's we don't fit. Uh, we go to the shops and we try on clothes to see if they fit. That's what we do. We, uh, we look for schools for our children and we want to find a school that fits. And sometimes a, a child can start at a school and then it just doesn't fit anymore. We uh, look for friends that fit. All right? And maybe we've had friends and all of a sudden they stopped fitting. You know? And I'm not saying that in an epileptic way, right? But they stopped, they stopped fitting. All right? In fact, if you look at it, what's humour? Humour is actually a story with a piece in it that doesn't fit. That's why it's funny. Like if you look at all the um, email kind of uh, videos that people send around, it used to be email, now it's kind of Facebook and social networking. If you look at the funny photos that get sent around, it's all about looking at something that doesn't quite fit. You see, things fit and things feel right when they fit. Uh, in uh, China this week, there was a, uh, they had a heat wave. I don't know whether anyone saw the stuff on the news, in the, uh, in the, news the nightly news, but they've had a heat wave. And of course, in China, when everyone's hot, they do the same thing we do. We've just got to go and swim somewhere, all right, where it's nice and, nice and cool. So I thought I'd, there's no audio for it, but I thought I'd show you a bit of a clip of what it looks like when Chinese go swimming. It kind of um, looks like that. You see, now this, this is a bit gross, right, but I'm going to say it anyway. I look at that and I just think, I'm starting to think percentages of perspiration that are literally the water and then kind of pee. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that, but it's, uh, isn't it intense? That was on the ABC News earlier this week. There's, uh, so I wanna, what I actually want to do in the first part today is talk about things that fit things that don't fit, things that don't seem to fit, but they fit. And then I'm going to end up, hopefully, showing you how well Jesus fits you. Because he does. He fits you super, super, super well. Let me give you the first one. Men and women fit, don't they? No, they're not the same, but they fit. It's, it's actually, it actually is a beautiful thing for a man and a woman to be together. The romance is, is beautiful, isn't it? Isn't, isn't the... Uh, my wife's going to listen to this, so I've got to be careful. Then. Isn't, isn't, even, isn't even the style of loving of a man and a woman, the different way that it expresses itself, is, isn't that a beautiful thing? I, I just think it's beautiful. I think, I think romance is beautiful. I think people being in love is beautiful. I think the differences in, in a marriage are absolutely beautiful, aren't they? I mean, I thank God for the differences between my wife and I. You know, and, and you know, the other thing that's interesting in, in marriages and relationships is people often find someone who's incredibly different to them. 
All right? And so you end up with two very different people together. I mean, imagine if across the board, extroverts married extroverts and introverts married introverts. It's like the introverts, you'd wave goodbye and you'd say, I'll see you in five years. All right? The two of them just go and bunk it down and they've got razor wire around the outside of their house and it's just like, stay away from me. I'll let you know when you can talk to me. All right? But what tends to happen is introverts marry extroverts, don't they? And that's, that's a really good fit. Now, it doesn't look like a good fit, but you know, a good fit is not actually two things being the same necessarily. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a woodwork teacher, so you just start talking about woodworking joints. If you have two pieces of woodwork joint that are the same, they're not going to fit most of the time. There's some joints that are like that, but most of them are. There's a piece over here that's different to this piece, and when you put it together, it's, it's really beautiful. And, and isn't that relationships? Isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's a good thing that the dudes here will tend to be pretty task-oriented, kind of driven, kind of people generally. And isn't, isn't it just a beautiful thing that, that, um, that women tend to be more relationally tuned? You know? And, and in a marriage, and if you've got kids in a marriage and the, and the, and the dad's been harsh on the kids, the, the wife can just say, hey, listen, I think you might have missed something. So you don't get that unless there's a difference that fits. All right? It's a good fit. Let me give you another thing that I think fits. Beauty fits, doesn't it? It just fits. I mean, if you've ever been down to the Twelve Apostles, you can stand there, and the best thing is actually to get down on the beach, isn't it? And you just kind of look up, and you know what? It's one of those weird things where you're standing there and you're seeing this massive big thing, but you know it just fits to be standing there observing it, doesn't it? I think it was uh, John Piper who said that no one goes to the Grand Canyon to enhance their self-esteem. He said, you go to the Grand Canyon to actually get a fully orbed panoramic view of your, in a sense, your insignificance because we're actually made for majesty and we, we were made for amazing, amazing things. And we were made to look at something that's way bigger than us and way more impressive than us and made to feel small yet significant in our smallness because the thing that's big loves us. And when you go and you look at a landscape and you get down on the beach at the Twelve Apostles or you even stand, you can go and stand on the... And I encourage you, drop into the lookout on the left, all right, not for a man and woman kind of passion or anything, all right, but just drop in on the left and, and have a... Uh, get out of the car and look at the view. You know, it just feels right. It just feels right. It just feels like it fits. But we actually know, don't we, that there's lots of things in the world that don't fit. And the things that don't fit in our world are particularly jarring when they happen. Uh, back in uh, 2005, there was a, um, a terrorist attack in England in the subway. Do you remember that? In the underground subway? And I'm going to show you a clip from it. It goes for a couple of minutes. But just notice, as I show it, you've just got these, the humanity there that was involved in that, they're just jarred by that something that doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. We start with a correspondent who travelled the world to bring us the news, but for Michael Usher, there was no story that shook him more than one that unfolded in London one particular morning in June. It is what London particularly had feared. For many years they'd planned for a terrorist attack of this kind of nature on the transport system at peak time 
and it happened. In the worst of circumstances, deep underground, in the, in the labyrinth of underground network, uh, the, the rail tunnels, in very confined spaces, many of it pitch black. And in the months since, we've heard many more of the stories of the survivors, people with limbs blown away who were forced to drag themselves along the, the tracks to try and get clear, blacking out for hours on end, eventually being brought to the surface and not knowing what had gone on. And really in London, that was the feeling for many hours. The first reports were of some sort of electrical fault on one of the lines. Then the entire underground rail system had closed down. It was about an hour before really the authorities called it a major disaster, a major incident, they called it here, and they realised that they were dealing with terrorism. But it was the city's worst nightmare. Everyone thought they were going to die. People started saying prayers, praying to God, panicking, breaking the carriage windows with their bare hands. People panicking, and then people started to calm down. People wanted to get to the back of this train, away from the danger area, but there was nowhere for them to go. And then they took us off the train and made us walk all the way back past it all. Dead bodies on the tracks. There was mayhem and, and then the driver came out of the carriage, and, and which was quite scary because he shone a red light and we all thought, was, I just thought, well, I thought I was dead. I thought, am I dead? And I thought, well, no, I can't be dead because I'm thinking. If my brain is still thinking, then I can't be dead. See, tragedy doesn't fit. Does it? Like you look at that and the people in the back end of that clip are really struggling with this thing that's happened and it doesn't fit. And you hear people's cries sometimes where people actually say things like this. They say, this, wasn't, this is not supposed to happen to me. This was not meant to happen. And there's a sense in that that there's something that's actually going on in the world that just doesn't fit us. And there's a biblical word for, uh, for peace, which I think I mentioned last week, is the word shalom. And there's a shattering of the shalom and there's a shattering of the peace that just doesn't fit. Uh, there was a, uh, a very smart, he's way above my pay grade, uh, Christian philosopher, uh, Plantinga, Cornelius Plantinga actually wrote this book and he titled it, I've got it at home, I've read it, um, but he, he titled it Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. You know, and that's a really good title because there's a lot of life, you just go, it's not supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to sit in an office with a student whose parents have busted up because one of them had an affair and the family's all shattered and help him to work through or her to work through the stuff that's gone on at home. That's not how it's supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be like that. And there's a sense in which there's a lot of things that don't actually fit. There was a 60-minute uh, story some time ago um, about a, a, young, a young girl who... Uh, um, was living with a boyfriend and she was actually party to um, a, a robbery. Her, she, she was in the car, her boyfriend got out of the car, went and robbed a, a shop and literally stole a gun and then they went to this party. Um, well, I think there was a party at their house actually and he had the gun on the back steps and uh, she told him, put it, put it down, you're going to kill someone. And uh, he said, no, no, it's not loaded. But you know what? It turned out to be loaded. And it literally, she got shot at point-blank range and basically had this section of her face literally just blown off. So the story was about kind of a bit of a face transplant that was happening. But uh, I'm just going to show you a quick clip. It only goes for about 15 seconds out of that story. Um, here we go. 
This was a gut-wrenching thing to see, a physically beautiful young girl, the rest of her body intact with the middle part of her face missing. It, it was something that, that just brings your heart to your throat. I would... You see, the destruction and the violation of, of beauty doesn't fit, does it? You see something that's beautiful and you just think, that, that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen that someone could be really beautiful and then get their face blown off by a shotgun. You know, and I, I haven't shown you a picture, but she was a pretty girl. And she gets her face blown off. You know, but then you end up in, kind of in, the, in this bind where you go, no, it doesn't fit. But then at the same time, you kind of go, well, she was kind of with the guy when he stole it. You know, and that's, that's almost part of the bind for us too, isn't it? Because there's part of us that's going, this doesn't fit. But then there's this little part of us that's going, well, it kind of does fit. You know, and with, with this story, I mean, there was a whole section of the interview where uh, the interviewer asked, have you ever reflected upon the circumstances in which your gun was actually, the gun that shot you was actually obtained? And she said, yeah, I have, lots of times. And that's, that's kind of the odd kind of bind for us, is that there's all this stuff that doesn't seem to fit, yet at the same time we feel partially responsible for the stuff that's not fitting around the place, and it's kind of, kind of our fault. But then you think, but no, it doesn't fit because it wasn't her fault, you know. It, it doesn't, you know, and, and there's this whole kind of bond. So things have fit, things that don't fit. Let me tell you about some things that don't seem to fit, but they actually fit. First one's this one. God in a graveyard. The... Um, the writer, uh, King Solomon of Ecclesiastes, actually said it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go, go to the house of partying and celebration. And I went to a, uh, my grandma's funeral about two months ago. She died really suddenly. Uh, she got pneumonia at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I think she, she died by about 8 o'clock or 7.30 that night. Really aggressive form of pneumonia. And so a few days later we were um, in the Pittsworth Cemetery and uh, it's a harrowing thing to go through and read headstones. Has anyone ever done that? It's just, you know, and then we got to this one family, and I might get a little bit of this wrong because it's a bit fuzzy on my memory, but there's this, a kid died at like four or five years of age in one family, and in the same family, 20 years later, another kid died at four or five years of age, you know? And it's just, you, you get into a cemetery, and there's a sense in which you just think, well, God doesn't fit in here. Because in a sense, death is not the way it was supposed to be, isn't it? Death is something that doesn't fit. But yet, and this was my experience at the graveside, God fits better in a cemetery almost than anywhere else in society. He just fits. And you know everyone, just about everyone knows it. I remember talking to someone recently who I think was uh, running a, a funeral, and it was a very non-Christian funeral. They didn't want anything said about God. They were absolutely determined there was to be nothing said about God. And the, you know, the pastor made the deal. Fair enough. Okay, we'll go with that. And you know what happened? As soon as the funeral started, is all these family members started talking about heaven. They started talking about the person still being alive at the end of it and going to a better place and being with God and all that sort of stuff. And the poor old pastor is just going, I thought we had a deal. You know? And then the family breaks the deal. Because you can't avoid it. I mean... It's, it's the, there's this impulse in which, in a cemetery, if you go and read the gravestones, is that God's just getting dragged into it all over the place. Almost every gravestone. With Jesus. With God. 
in loving hands now. And he fits. He fits in a graveyard. This is a painting called The Scream. There's another part of life that just doesn't seem to fit. And it's suffering, isn't it? Suffering doesn't fit. And even more than that, it doesn't feel like God fits in suffering. He just doesn't fit. But you know what? He does fit. You only have to read the book of Job to see at the end of it that that is exactly where God belongs. And God, more than that, God actually places himself in a place where he suffers because he wants to be in the centre of the struggle because he fits in a struggle. He always fits in a struggle. And you know what? God fits. It doesn't matter what happens in your life, he fits. He will always fit. He won't always fit the way that you want him to fit, but he will always fit. You only have to go through some of the names of, uh, of God in the Bible. John 6 verse 35 says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know what? God describes himself by various names because he is all those things for us. That's his nature. And he's not those things only and solely for us. That's, that's what he's like. Now, whether you access him as someone who's bread and life is irrelevant to the fact that he is bread and life. Amen? John 7, verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, well, the, uh, John writes first, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can I just turn me down for a sec, Brock, just a little bit? Let me do it. On the last day of the feast, imagine coming to church. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the church, he will be the one who quenches your thirst. But you've got to come to him. You don't get the thirst quenching by staying away from him. Jesus fits thirsty people, doesn't he? And he doesn't, it's not like I'm going to sit in the corner of the temple or the synagogue and just quietly read a scripture out of Isaiah because I think in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke it, it talks about the fact that Jesus was reading a prophecy here. But he gets up in front of everyone and he cries out in a loud voice and he says, you thirsty people, come to me. Come to me. And in Isaiah 55, Isaiah says, we go for so many things. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? Why do you spend money on what is not drink? Why do you waste your time and your effort seeking after something that doesn't satisfy your hunger and doesn't satisfy your thirst? And the truth is, probably, for some of us, is we've spent part of our, I'm trying to be generous, right? But we've spent part of our last seven days spending money on things that don't satisfy. And I'm not even talking about literal money. I'm talking about your time and your effort. I think literal money comes into it. And he would stand, maybe, in your house, in the scriptures, and say to you, if you thirst, come to me and drink. And what about this one? 
John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's nothing that a dumb sheep needs more than a good shepherd. True? Amen? And the truth, I was talking to one of my sons about this this week. I said, sheep are really dumb. All right? I said, and you can't drive sheep like you can drive cattle. You need to lead sheep. You drive sheep from behind and they'll just fragment. All right? I'll go all over because they're dumb and they're stupid. And we need a good shepherd. I don't care how skilled you are and how much you think you got it together, you need a good shepherd. And you know what? In our culture, you know what you're taught to do? You're taught to consume. What's the next thing? What's the next thing to get distracted by? Have I got some emails? Have I got a, a notification on Facebook? Have I got a text message? You know, I've got to get to the shops and I've got to buy this next thing. And God would say to you this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Did you have a moment, a number of moments this week where you just slowed down enough just to meditate on that? Or think about that. You shall not want. You won't want. Which is weird because we feel like we want lots of stuff and we need lots of stuff, right? But the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And busy Westerners need a shepherd that makes them lie down, don't they? See, this is a thing, you know. It's, you probably heard me say this before, maybe at the project, you know, but I don't see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden needing me time, all right? Or downtime. It's like, I'm sorry, Eve, I've just, I just need a bit of me time, all right? If I'm just going to go and hang out under that palm over there for a bit, I'd love it. It's a bit of an introvert moment. I'd love it if you, you know, you're an extrovert, and that's, I like you because you're the only one here, but you're also really nice, all right? So if you just kind of go over here and you just, can you just stay away for a bit, right? When the palm leaves are kind of standing up in the end and that looks like a fence, I don't want you to come in. And as soon as I've, uh, as soon as I've had my me time, my little introvert time, I'll be okay. You see, I don't see that happening, right? And this is a challenge. This has been, the, this is my 2013 challenge is how can I take my cues from my shepherd about when to rest? You know? Because there's, there's almost a sense, isn't there, when you, when you get too busy and it's too much, there's that impulse to want to hold, grip tighter onto your world instead of releasing it in trust. And I've got to do this to me, for me and I've almost, you get to the point where you're just kind of going, if I don't save myself, no one else will. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's another psalm, I can't find it right here, it just came into my mind. The Lord is my strength, an ever-present refuge in a time of trouble. 
And then it says this, it says, So I will not fear even though the whole earth gives way. I think about that. Could you stand on the edge of the earth opening up because of an earthquake and not fear? Because the psalmist is telling you you could. You actually could. You could actually stand there and watch the world disappearing because of some cataclysmic event and you'd be okay. You know why? Because you've got a good shepherd. And he fits dumb sheep and scared sheep. Jonathan Edwards said this about, uh, about Jesus and uh, about what makes Jesus glorious. He says, Jesus is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. <laughs> How true is that? Now, some of you go, what does that even mean? All right? It just means he's a whole bunch of things that seem contradictory that come together in one person that make him absolutely stunning and amazing. Let me give you a couple. See, God's transcendent. Yet at the same time, well, Jesus was transcendent, but at the same time, he was submitted to his Father. What about this about Jesus? Uh, Jesus' uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. It's like, I'm merciful, I'm just. And you kind of, for, as a human, you're just going, well, I don't know how that's going to work. But it just does. And you know what? Because it works, it fits us, right? Isn't it true? I mean, in a good dad and a good mum, there's times where it needs to be justice. But there's also times it needs to be mercy. And that's what God's like. I'm going to give justice there, and then I'll give mercy here. One of my boys got up a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, it was one of those days for him where it all just started going wrong from the start. All right? It just did. When the guy walked out, he was just... It was kind of like the, the demon of Murphy is, was resting upon his soul. All right? He walked out and he bumped into the Lincoln kitchen cupboard as soon as he got out there and he's, ah, you know, like that. So, oh, look, it's just going to be terrible. And then he pulls open his Lincoln, um, the drawer there, pulls out his, uh, his bowl and he puts it on the bench and he pours his cornflakes into it, puts the cornflakes down, bumps the packet, falls over and spills out on the bench. Says, ah, there's another thing, you know. And then uh, he gets the, uh, the milk out, you know. And if you've ever had cornflakes, you know that if you just get your timing wrong and you just aim it wrong, you can just get it on one of those flakes. It can just skim it off the edge of the plate over the bench. And so he's poured his milk on it. It's just skimmed out over the bench. Ah, you know, it's another thing. And, you know, does my son need to be punished and for me to be just at that point in time or does he need a merciful father? Well, he needs a merciful father. That's what he needs, you know. And I think it's great, you know, because you can have a day. Maybe you had a day this week where you just kind of, you got up and you just said, it all went wrong from the get-go. And you couldn't do it anymore. By the end of the day, you're just going, I'm, I'm tapping out on life. It's not like you wanted to kill yourself or anything, but you're just going, I'm done, all right. Um, I'm going to put the no vacancy sign up on the office door and I'll see you in about three hours for bedtime and then hopefully tomorrow will be a new day. And you know what? You just need to know that because God is a combination of justice and mercy, he's going to give mercy when you need mercy and justice when you need justice. What about this? 
God's, Jesus' majesty is sweetened by his, weak, his meekness, isn't it? Sorry, I almost said weakness. His, his majesty is sweetened by his meekness. Isn't it interesting how with Jesus, his equality with God was, was there. There was no doubt about that, but he had this reverence for God. And although Jesus was worthy of all good, he was to suffer evil. And this person in Jesus that was, had sovereign dominion over the whole world was actually clothed with the spirit of obedience and wisdom to his father. And then you've got Jesus' interactions with the scribes where he absolutely baffled them. But yet, the kids loved him, didn't they? It was like he was that smart that they had no answer for him, yet the kids loved him. And my boys, I mean, my, it's kind of a bit kind of the Sonnegal way, but my boys, as they've been growing up, they've just loved the thought of having a rumble with Jesus. You know? Because I think it would have happened. I mean, imagine this guy just mixing all with the best of them in the temple and the synagogue. Then he gets outside and half an hour later he's having a rumble with a bunch of boys in the dust. You know? Isn't that... I mean, that's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. Some of my boys get a bit irreverent, you know, in the way that they're going to rumble, but one of them has said in the past, I'm going to punch him in the teeth. I'm just going... (laughs) Punch him in the teeth. (laughs) That's right. Cheap shot. Look at this one. Jesus could still the storm with one word, couldn't he? Well, two words, be quiet. He could still the storm with two words, yet he wouldn't bring himself down off the cross. One word could have brought him down. And it's just, you're kind of going, well, you're that powerful. And in fact, the... These sarcastic remarks in the sense of the, uh, the observers at the cross who were saying, just pull yourself down. Well, of course he could pull himself down. He could order any, any number of angels to do that. And there was a point in the uh, scriptures where he could have fried the Samaritans for their, for their sins and for their, as, in judgment over them as well, but he didn't do that either. It's just, it's odd. But it's... And I don't say that in a negative way, but it's just odd. And God's and Jesus' oddness fits us, doesn't it? It just really fits. And we actually find that it's the excellencies of Jesus that fit our need so incredibly well. Which gets us to Hebrews. Jesus is a perfect fit. Why don't you uh, read through it as I uh, read through it up here, or you can get your Bibles out if you want. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Last week I talked about the fact that Jesus is like Melchizedek, and in the sense that the Bible talks about no ancestors of Melchizedek, and it talks, says nothing about his death, there's a sense in which Melchizedek in his priesthood actually lives forever. And Jesus is in that line of priests. In fact, there's Jesus and Melchizedek in that line, and he fits in there. And Jesus, in that sense, always lives. Similar to Melchizedek, he always lives, and so he's a perfect priest for us, a perfect mediator. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So you got around about 86 high priests, and they died. 
And as I mentioned last week, you could be an Israelite, you could, go, you could have a really sweet high priest and he's just doing a really good job and he understands you and he's a really good mediator and he's a good man. And then he'll die on you. It's just like, well, what am I going to do now? Who's the next guy going to be? Am I going to be able to talk to him like I used to be able to talk to you? Is he going to help me as much as you used to help me? And the writer of Hebrews knows that this is a problem, right? Because they die. And so your mediator disappears on you. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds Jesus, his priesthood, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Never asleep, never having a sick day, never doing some of the dodgy things that the Old Testament priests did. Always accessible, always listening, always engaged, always helping, always speaking into situations, always organising for things to, to come about that will bless you and that will help you. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You know what, when you read that, my instant thought is, well, that doesn't fit, right? If he's that good, he's not going to fit me. But the truth is that he needs to be that good to fit me. He needs to be that good to fit you. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Here's the thing, your high priest in the Old Testament, it was like God's going, you've got to deal with your own stuff before you can even think about mediating for other people. So they had to go in and deal with their own stuff first. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, how legendary is this guy? He never has to go in and deal with his own stuff. Well, you think about that. It's not like you go to God, to Jesus, and he goes, well, hang on, you know, I kind of... I blew it yesterday, so I've just got to go and sort this thing out with God and then I'll get back to you. You know, it's like I'll call you back. It's not like that. It's like always on. And it's like always committed, always able to help, always interceding, doesn't ever have to intercede for his own stuff, never has to say sorry for his own stuff, always, always accessible and ready and able to help in every single time of need. Is anyone excited about that? That's amazing. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right, I'm going to fly through six things really quick, then we're going to have communion. First one's this, how does Jesus fit? He never dies. You need someone that never dies, because you're going to, and you need someone who's never off the job, right? Point number one, get it in your head, never dies, okay? Point number two, he intercedes constantly for you. And this is what we are talking about last week. He intercedes all the time, constantly presenting a good word to God on your behalf, all the time. All the time. Just keeps going and going and going. Right now, he's interceding on your behalf. The fact that I'm even up here talking about him and preaching the word to you is evidence of the fact that God's, Jesus is interceding with the Father to get good things for you 
so that you can be changed and so that you can be shepherded really well by him. He intercedes constantly for you. Point three, he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You know what's interesting about this? Way back at the start of preaching on Hebrews at the project, in chapter 1, verse 3, it actually says that Jesus made purifications for sins. If you get back, I'm not going to go through the message that I preached, that was probably 18 months ago, maybe 12 months ago. But you know what? The Old Testament, when it translates the word filthy, and it uses that word quite often when it comes to sin, filthy is kind of the spiritual rendition of the word. If you actually go for a physical rendition, if someone in the Old Testament, if they use the same word to describe some physical filth, they would use it to describe poo and vomit. So, in a sense, and, and there's some, I didn't want to go in, into them today, but there's some stuff in the Old Testament that makes, it talks about how we're covered in our, in our own filth. And there's a, there's a sense in which, biblically, that we're covered in, our sins are like we're covered in poo and vomit. Now, someone who's covered in poo and vomit doesn't need someone else who's covered in poo and vomit. <laughs> True? They actually need someone who's not covered in poo and vomit. You know, it's, it's like our boys get out in the backyard, they get muddy, and then they realise they had a good shirt on, they had got a bit of mud on it, and so they try to brush it off, and the, the hand was muddy, so they end up with more mud on their shirt. You know, it's like, well, that's not going to help you, because what you actually need to get something off is you need something clean, or something that can clean you. The fact that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, fits us. Fits us perfectly. Now, there's one thing uh, that I just wanted to throw in. It's also true that there's a sense in which it doesn't fit, isn't it? You guys got Bibles? You can turn to uh, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. This is the call of... uh, Isaiah. In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He had a vision of God, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you imagine this scene. It's, it's an Incredibly, in the true sense of the word, it's an awesome scene. It's a fearsome scene. It's a reverential scene. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And notice how Isaiah responds to this. Isaiah said, and I said, woe is me. Because here's the thing. If you're a sinner and you get in the presence of God, usually that's a bad thing. All right? And he's kind of going, I'm gone. I'm dead. I'm wrong place at the wrong time. I'm sorry. You know, it's like, that's going to be the end of it. And he, and he says that. He says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. I remember hearing this uh, preacher that I uh, trust quite a lot in the States talk about this story of this other fellow, uh, this other pastor that he used to catch up with. And he said he went and he saw this pastor and this pastor said, said to him, he goes, oh yeah, it's really cool. He goes, Jesus, Jesus and I kind of get to hang out all the time. All right? And he goes, and this guy goes, okay, all right. And uh, what do you mean? He goes, well, when I'm shaving in the morning, he goes, Jesus kind of shows up. We just have a bit of a chat and then he goes. And he's kind of my mate. And uh, I'm not saying that's not possible, but this preacher just asked him. He just goes, uh, can I just ask you one question about that? The guy goes, yeah, sure. Uh, he goes, do you stop shaving? <laughs> that's a really good question, right? Because pretty much every single time in the Bible where someone actually comes face to face with God or some representation of God, everything stops and most of them think they're going to die. <laughs> All right? That's just kind of it. It's like, well, the death sentence has been passed. I'm just about to get executed. You know, there's no way I'm going to live through this. And so we've got to be careful. I'm not saying it's not possible. But we've got to be careful with things like that where you just say, oh, Jesus is my mate. Well, yeah. The Bible says he's your friend, but he's a fearsome friend, you know. And probably if it was Jesus, I would suspect that you wouldn't keep shaving, you know, because he has that kind of aura about him. And Isaiah realises that. But you know what? In that sense, you kind of go, well, it doesn't fit for a sinner to be with God. But when God dies in Jesus on the cross, a holy, unstained, innocent person who's separated from sinners... In his character, in his life, is exactly the kind of person that you need. That's number three. Number four. It's one I mentioned earlier. Jesus is a perfect fit because he doesn't need to deal with his own sins every day. Point number five. Jesus is a perfect fit because he doesn't need to deal daily with your sins either. Do you get that? It's like it was done. The bank account was filled with all of the needs that you're ever going to have. And it's not like we've got to go out and slaughter him again tomorrow because you've got another need that's come up. Oh, wow, that was a surprise. You didn't know about that one. He knows about the needs. He knows what's going on. And he's paid for it. He's paid for every sin, past, present, and future. And you know what's so good about that? You don't even know half the things that you do that are actually sinful. You see, the nature of sin is that sin deceives... And people deceive themselves. So it's entirely possible that you are going to get to the end of the day, some days, and just go, well, to the best of my knowledge, I can't think of anything I did wrong today. And you might be right. But your knowledge is not clear enough. The truth is that the whole way through the day, who knows what kind of systemic sin actually was going on in your life that you were totally blind to? Because there absolutely would have been. Because anyone who's old enough knows that... Ten years after, you know, you might become a Christian, and then ten years' time, you just kind of go, stop. Have I been doing that for ten years? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Just go, really? You know, if you went back ten years, you go, oh, I think I'm doing okay. And a mate of mine, we were talking about this the other, night, the other night, a mate of mine has actually said, he goes, you know, I think it's actually possible to just have a day or even a few weeks where you actually don't ever sin. And I'm just going, well... But that's, that's only if you define sin as a conscious choosing. All right? But the Bible doesn't define sin as a conscious choosing because it knows that humans have systemic sins. 
right? Which is just part of their fabric. It's part of the way they operate. And if you're married, you know this really, really well, right? Because your partner's exactly like this. You're not, but they are, all right? He's going, I've seen it, man. You talk about systemic sin. Man, look at that tooth, toothpaste tube, you know? Put the seat down, will you? He's dealt with all the stuff that you don't even know about, right? And the impulse in all of this has been to get bummed out. It's like, oh, so we're going to get all depressed because all of a sudden I thought, I thought I'd worked out everything that was going wrong and all of a sudden you've just told me. It's like the tip on the iceberg and there's something 30,000 times bigger than the Titanic underneath that I don't even know about. My point's not that at all. My point is, isn't that incredible how gracious and forgiving and merciful God is that he knows you fully, way better than you know yourself, and he still intercedes for you, and he still helps you, and he forgives you. And the last one, and you notice that there is, uh, in that scripture there, is that uh, Jesus is a perfect fit because he's in the job because of an oath. And the the writer of Hebrews uh, makes this comment. He says, he basically says, look, the, the Old Testament priesthood of Levi just kind of came about by a certain process, but it wasn't actually brought about by a promise. And if you actually go to uh, Psalm 110, which is where this uh, quote comes from, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 110, my memory's a bit fuzzy, but you go to 110 and it says, you are a priest today in the order of Melchizedek. And it was a promise. And you know what? One of the questions I often ask uh, classes that I teach at school here is I say, can God do anything? And, you know, almost without exception, they say, yes, he can. And I say to them, no, he can't, all right? Because in Hebrews chapter 6, it actually says it's impossible for God to lie. God actually cannot ever act outside of his character. And you know what? That's a good thing. You know why? Because God promised with the coming of Melchizedek and then Jesus coming afterwards in the order of Melchizedek that there is always going to be a priest to intercede for you and to help you. And that's his promise, right? Now, here's the thing. If he said it, he's going to do it. It's certain. And, and the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that. He's just, God is a person of his word. You don't need a contract. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to read any fine print. He is someone who gives his word, and his word is absolutely certain. There will never be any circumstance that ever comes up where he will say, there's no more priest anymore. You guys contravene the deal. Because the writer of Hebrews wants you to know, you've got a new deal. This is a good deal. This deal is never, ever going to be broken by your deeds. This priest will never, ever disappear. He's never going to die. He's never going to be distracted. He's never going to be sick. He's never going to be tired. He's constantly and always going to be interceding for you and helping you. And he promises that that's going to happen. And he can't lie. So hope. Amen? Hope. He's not like you. He's not like your friends. He's not like your family. He's not like former leaders of churches that you've had. He's not like me. Amen? That's a good thing. I'm telling you, I know me a bit. And it's a good thing he's not like me. Okay? So don't trust in me. I'm not your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. You go to him. You'll be disappointed in me. I promise it. You probably have already. And it'll happen again. 
All right? It just will. Because I'm not your mediator. I'm not the real deal that you need to head to. If you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews there, this is the scripture I want to finish on. This is Hebrews 7, verse 20 to 22. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, talking about Jesus, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And then this beautiful line, and this is where I want to finish today, in Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now the guarantor is, for me, in my life, my parents have been guarantor for me. Because when, we, uh, when I first got my first mortgage, you know, the, the mortgage insurance was going to go through the roof because you find a guarantor who can back you and, and all the prices come down of actually getting, getting money because they're more confident they're going to be able to get their money out of someone if uh, you fall on hard times. What a guarantor, yeah? What's, what a person to back you. Like, you better, you've got to meditate on that, right? Because you're sitting there and you're probably going, oh, that's good. That's, that's, not, that's not just good. You've got no idea. There's always more to see. I posted this on Facebook. There's always more to see in what you see. And so I would encourage you this week, think about it. Meditate on it. What does that mean? You know, when you hit a moment this week where you get all anxious, and you know, anxiety, a large part of anxiety and stress and pressure is God's deserted me and I've got to work it out myself. That's kind of a subconscious thing that's going on. And you need to come back to Hebrews 7, verse 22, which says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's guaranteed. I might just pray. Jesus, you fit us so well, incredibly well. You're exactly what we needed. We needed a new deal. We couldn't comply with the old deal. And biblical history shows it, that humans just could not comply with the old deal. It just, we, we could make it work. It didn't work. But yet, God, this new deal this new guarantor, this new covenant, this new promise is exactly right. It is exactly fitting.